Hello, friends. Welcome to the Of Leadership Podcast. I am Alex. I'm John. I'm Zach. I'm Avram. And obviously, we have a guest today. And so, Avram Natagel is with us, and we'll we'll kind of introduce him here in a second. I'm um, actually, Avram, could you do us a favor? Uh, it's actually episode sixty-two. Um, any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> we literally just had a conversation about how he had no no, no idea for episode 61. But lucky for him, it's, it's episode 62. 62. Yeah, so anyways, uh, so he has nothing, but that's okay, because I have things too. We've, we've kind of deviated from the number theme into a song theme now, so I have some songs, as, as we... As we all know, because we've listened to the last podcast with him on, he was part of a, a punk rock band called Thelma. Um, also is a part of some documentaries. I, I'm sure the music is somewhere in there. Anyways, um, so uh, with the musical theme, uh, some, some things to think about here. Uh, there's a band from Scarborough, Ontario. Um, are you going to Scarborough Fair, perhaps? Simon and Garfunkel? Yes, very, yes. Good. very good. Um, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, sure. <laughs> Anyways, the band is Bare Naked Ladies, um, One Week. So I think of the song One Week, since we're talking about dating, One Week You Looked at Me, and then I don't remember the other words, other than Chickadee China, I believe, is somewhere in that song, right, Avram? I believe that's the song that broke them in your country. Oh. I think that's right. <laughs> I remember it in like a Digimon movie when I was growing <laughs> up or something. <laughs> It was one of the rare bands other than Rush that broke into the States. Uh, it wasn't uh, if I had a million dollars. That's another dating song we could throw out there. No, it was it was uh, uh, the previous one. OK, gotcha. <laughs> so you never buy a green dress. Apparently, that's a, I remember part of that song. <laughs> Just random words. <laughs> OK, well, um, before we get into what we're talking about today, which is dating a broader perspective. Let's go ahead and recap our last episode, gentlemen, which was dating trial and error. Yeah, our last podcast, we looked at dating trial and error, and we started off the podcast looking at the worst dating advice, slogans, mm -hmm. pithy statements that we have found to be completely useless with dating. Uh, we then talked about what was making dating better or worse, and then that dovetailed into our thoughts of... How could someone do dating better? And it really helps with tonight's podcast as yep. we look at Avram and, and his his work in, in that world. So uh, get a chance to listen to that podcast. Uh, we encourage you to do that. Well, tonight we have uh, Avram Natagal with us. And for those listeners of the uh, our, our podcast, you'll notice his name from a previous uh, episode huh. uh, where Avram was with us and, and Joy having a repeat guest. And yeah. he may be our first repeat guest. Yes. And I believe it was something about destroying your family. Through punk rock, I think that was the, no. That might actually be the title. I think the title, if I remember right, was "How Bowen Bowen Family Systems Theory Almost Destroyed My Family yes. and How I Got mm -hmm. It Back" or mm -hmm. something like that. So uh, it was an enjoyable podcast for sure. Uh, Avram is a, an author and therapist uh, from Toronto, Ontario, and uh, author of several books, including "Learning to Commit." Uh, his wife, Elisa, and him just recently released a book, It Takes More Than Love, which is a excellent workbook for couples who are in the single engagement and then ultimate dating category. 
category. And then this December, uh, he's going to release a book with uh, another uh, former colleague of his, Where Would You Like to Start? So uh, very steeped in, in family therapy and Bowen family systems theory and excited to have Avram tonight with us. So welcome, Avram. Good to have you tonight. It's great to be here, guys. We're going to take a look at uh, this notion of dating, and uh, in our last podcast, we looked at dating more from a secular standpoint and an American viewpoint, uh, focusing on feelings and uh, image, and I know for many of the people that we talk to and observe, uh, dating is is a difficult um feel to navigate. So what we're looking for tonight uh, with Avram with us is to look for a broader perspective beyond just perhaps how our listeners might think of dating. So Avram, maybe tonight you could kick off a little bit about what might it look like for our listeners to broaden their viewpoints of dating and, and perhaps relationships in general. Where are you coming from? Well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because when you say broaden, in a way we're going back. And when we think going back, we think myopic and narrow and not broad. But I, I actually think uh, in the past there is some traditions uh, from cultures, uh, you know, far older than um, whatever self-help uh, book on love and dating currently exists that might be uh, wisdom that might be very helpful to uh, young people who are dating, uh, you know, the young people in my office, they're they're just completely overwhelmed by choice, um, the amount of, you know, online dating sites and the amount of people that they, uh, potential suitors that they think um, currently exist out there. And also the other interesting thing is, unlike our parents and our grandparents, the young people in my office, um, marriage is an option. That wasn't true for my parents or my grandparents. The young people in my office genuinely see marriage as one uh, alternative lifestyle uh, that they could pick or, or, or not. And they're not sure even if, um, if marriage as an institution is worth getting into based on the experiences that they saw from their parents. So there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of confusion, and uh, maybe tonight we can help clarify uh, you know, how to get into a long-term emotional commitment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's get these people hitched. So real quick, Avram, what's driving these people into your office? Are they seeking you out specifically for advice on their dating life or is this coming up tangentially or uh, how are you connecting with these young people? Yeah, it's a great question. I really hoped after writing my first book, I would be getting a bunch of anxious singles in my office. But <laughs> the, the truth is that, um, you know, uh, by the time you recognize your problem, you already have two kids and a mortgage uh, and all that unfinished business sort of hits you in the face that you just didn't quite see when you were 26 and having an Americano in your favorite coffee, coffee shop, shop and thinking <laughs> that, you know. You're, you're nice and mature and uh, you've got everything figured out. And so people usually come to me, um, I would say uh, the average couple in my office are in their mid-30s with young kids and just completely swamped with work, dual income families, um, dual parenting roles. Uh, often their parents are in other cities, uh, very little extended family support. Um, and, and, and really sort of making up the rules as they go along. Very few of them are, are involved in their church or synagogue or mosque. And 
they're just really anxious and confused and, and not sure what to do with, uh, I, th- I believe the term from John Kabat-Zinn is the full catastrophe of living. So when when you talk with individuals that are in that place, and uh, I would say that that's not unique to your office, that we observe that same thing here uh, in America where individuals find themselves in relationships and they're not sure which way to turn. And so, so where's a place to start if someone finds themselves in that position of... I was talking to somebody even just today who told me, I just don't have time to breathe. And I know you're telling me to be centered and be the calmest person in the room, but I just don't have the mental space to take the time to get there. And and I, I hear what you're saying, that you see people in your office. What's a step that someone can take when they find themselves in that situation? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. One, my late supervisor, the, um, the uh, Dr. David Freeman, who I wrote my third book with, he, he used to say something interesting about genograms, uh, family diagrams. He said that often the, the process of working on a diagram with a couple in one's office, it creates a focal point away from focusing on all of the misgivings and shortcomings of your partner. And it creates just enough space to, to focus on the diagram to forget how hard done by you are by your partner. And he said the goal, he goes, if you can do that in a first session, take the focus, help the individual, each individual take the focus off of the other and towards self in any way, and a genogram can help, do the genogram, even if they don't understand multi-generational process, even if they get nothing out of the process of doing a family diagram, the fact that they're not for a brief moment, they're, they, they're not focused on why would God do this to me and give me such a monster, hmm. right? <laughs> why, why am I suffering so much? He, he said that that process alone is worth all the money in the world. And I, by the way, I have found this to be true, true. that any couple that comes back to me for a second session is a couple that for a brief moment left my office and thought, my God, this is the first time I haven't focused on my partner and how, how I'm done in by them uh, for 15, 20 minutes. Uh, when I spent the last, you know, eight months, four years speaking to my friends and family members about, um, uh, you know, uh, their situation. And so it's it's very hard to tell an individual that I think you have to have both people in 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 the office and experience what it's like to talk about how they're stuck in a different way without the focus on why are you doing this to me? Why do you make me feel this way? Why are you so cruel? And if you can provide people with that experience in your office, a chance to reflect on self without doing that because you can't tell someone, What's your part in the problem? Because the the automatic reaction is going to be, I'm innocent in this. I'm innocent in this. Of course, it's a natural. It's sort of a natural reaction. Um, And uh, and and so, as you, I'm sure you've talked about on this show, it's it's the natural part of fusion. And if you can if you can allow people the space to become curious about their part in how they got gridlocked. In that in that process, there's some hope. There's some hope that there's a different way of thinking about this, and, and that's what's um, that, that's how I approach it uh, right from the get go. 
So within that, you said um, a different way, right? Allowing for a different way. And you um, specifically have some different ways of dating uh, from some different perspectives and cultures. So maybe you explain that a little bit and, and how, that, how you see that fit with Bone Family Systems Theory and today's dating realm. So here's the thing. In the secular world, when we date, we have choice. And choice is, is, is a good thing. But I think we spoke about this in the other uh, podcast. I forget his name. If, if you guys can jog my memory, the guy who wrote Too Much Choice, uh, something Schwartz, a, fa- a famous TED Talk. Yeah. Something about uh, Too Much Choice. Um, yeah, I have that here. Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz. Dr. Barry Schwartz. And so on the one hand, we have a wealth of opportunities to meet people. And on the other hand, it, it's, it's completely overwhelming. And the people, the, the, the people in my office who finally do find someone, they base their partner selection mostly on physical attraction and sexual compatibility and some sort of uh, similar life goals very, very few focus on um, character and life principles and family background. Uh, and, um, and I think that what happens is the natural arc of emotionally committed relationships operates in a way that all of that good stuff that drew people together ends or, or grows stale. And no one tells people this, that all that great, hot, passionate sex you were having in the <laughs> first few months of your relationship, that's going to end. And no one is prepared for the stale period. And when people come to my office, what's happened is that they've tried to double down on different techniques and, and, and using compromise and trying to improve communication, which to no avail. It just they, they become more gridlocked and they become hopeless. And what, what you'll hear people say is, I want to just go back to the way it once was. I, I want things to be the way they once were. And my message, and I don't say this out loud, but the work proceeds in a way that it could never be. It And it will never be. And you are in a place that you have to be. And you're in a place that you're going to have to work yourself out of to figure out what your marriage really is. Because what you just had is some sort of post-adolescent infatuation, you know, neurochemical goodness. But once a mortgage kicks in and a couple of kids kick in, something else has to take its place. A more mature partnership has to take its place. And it's not sexy. And it takes a certain amount of maturity. And unfortunately, at that point, all of the unfinished business and immaturity and anxiety sort of bubbles to the surface that you really didn't quite see when you were in a coffee shop dating, you know, nine, 10 <laughs> years ago. And so it really is an opportunity to get to know each other. But I think there's a better way. I think there's a better way to handle our dating so that we don't get as gridlocked in our relationships and as hopeless in our relationships. Okay, well, obviously, we want to know what this 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 way is going to be. Specifically, looking at kind of broadening that out, and you, you mentioned your work in working with couples and thinking about history at the beginning of our podcast. You talked about uh, f- uh, you use the word like insular communities and some ways of dating that are done more traditionally. 
that are different from the the more contemporary ways of dating? Can you talk a little bit about that broadening of that perspective of this is the way these individuals approach dating and something we might be able to learn from that? Sure. I think that, um, so I have a bit of experience working with, uh, there's different ways to talk about this group, the Haredim or the Hasidim, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. And they, they date they date the way they've been dating since the late you know 18th century, and they still date this way in 2019. And I think there's some uh, um, very unique and interesting things to mine that someone who is not religious and not even Jewish could take into their dating experiences um, right now. But I just a little bit of background, just to give you a sense of who these people are. I was in Montreal. I was living in Montreal in an area where there were a lot of these um, uh, Hasidic Jews, and I got invited to one of their homes. So you have to picture I'm walking down the street. It's about nine o'clock at night. It's dark. I'm walking with five men. They're all wearing fur hats from the 18th century. They're wearing knee-high stockings, white knee-high stockings. They've got the curly Q uh, hair off the side. They're speaking Yiddish. They're not speaking English. And I'm walking with them to their house for supper. And approaching us is a little guy. He looks like he's 110. He, he looks like Yoda. He has a fur hat, too. <laughs> and he's got a big gray beard. And he walks past us. And all of these guys bow. They sort of bow in deference to this guy. And so the guy walks away, and I turn to them, and I think we just met some holy Jewish mystic that just landed here from Lodz or something. <laughs> but actually, they turned to me, and I'm like, who is this guy? I want to know. I'm very excited. And they all look at each other, and I go, we don't know. And I'm like, well, you all just stepped off the sidewalk and let this guy go by. And they said to me, you know, Avram, he's about 104, He's closer to Revelation at Sinai than we are. And so he's closer to the original event when the tablets from Moses. And they sort of explained to me that anybody who's older than they are has a closer connection to, to Revelation. Whatever you think about history, there is something to be said for people who are closer, for example, to World War II. We, 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 we listen to those stories with a certain amount of reverence. And so this is the community. They look backwards. They look backwards and they see wisdom and knowledge in tradition and, and, and in, in history. So it's important to understand where these guys are coming from. Okay. So this is how this community dates. They date like this. A girl turns 18, 19, 20, and she turns to her parents, or her parents turn to her, and, and she says, I'm ready to meet someone. And the parents call someone called a shadchan, a, a matchmaker, just like <laughs> in the old country. And the matchmaker says, oi, do I have a boy for you? He's 24. <laughs> he comes from a good family. And the matchmaker does their homework and contacts the family of the boy. Now, again, we're assuming this is these are heterosexual couples. There are gay and lesbian Hasidic Jews, but generally matchmakers are matchmaking heterosexual couples. So the matchmaker serves as a um, an intermediary between the, the, the boy and the girl. And a lot of homework goes into character traits, family history, economics, um, even mental health. And by the time the boy and girl meet on that first date, there has been sometimes weeks of uh, background. Um, uh, what, are the, what do you call that in politics? Uh, op, uh, oppo, oppo research, right? There's been a yeah, lot of opposi oppo opposition research. research. On, on, except for the good. Except for the sure. good. <laughs> yeah, no, right, and right, so, right, right. 
And so by the time the matchmaker greenlights the first date, very little is unknown about the background, the character stuff, what, what these families are made out of, what kind of stock they're coming from. So what happens after that is the boy and the girl meet. And where do they meet? They don't go to a movie where they're distracted. They don't go to a rock concert. They usually go to a hotel lobby in public so that there's no chance of any physical touch and there's no chance of sexual chemistry getting in the way of, of the one focus. And the focus is, can I envision building a life with this person? Can you see, because the question is, if you hold hands with someone or you, or you, uh, you, you kiss, does that really tell you if they're going to be a good life partner? I, I would, I would argue, no, <laughs> I, I, I would, I would argue. In fact, I, I would say it gets in the way of answering yeah. one question. Can I build a life with this person? What do I mean by that? When we have kids and we we're both operating on two hours sleep after five days, how are we going to work as a partner? If my partner gets cancer and they're taking chemotherapy treatments. How are we going to work as a partnership in terms of finances and raising the kids, right? If, if we, you know, do we send our kids to private school or do we send our kids to public school? And what city do we live in? You know, French kissing isn't going to tell you that, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's just not. Um, and so this, this, young, this young couple, they meet, right? They meet once and they might go again. They might do this for two or three times. But you know what's fascinating? They don't meet more than a month or two months. At about a month or two months, they tell the matchmaker, each one separately, yes, I think this individual would be a good fit, a good life partner uh, for me. And then the matchmaker contacts both of them and they, they tell them, congratulations, uh, you know, so-and-so thinks that you'd be a good fit and you feel the same way. And then there's an engagement and a marriage and, and things proceed from there. They never have sex. They never kiss. They never hold hands. Hmm. Okay. Um, and if you ask them, and I work with these couples, by the way, they have their problems. Let, let me be clear. They have their, they have gridlock. They have triangles. There's fusion. There's, there's immaturity. There's low differentiation. So it's not like... All of this is happening at the higher scale of maturity. However, however, the the idea in the secular world that I have to try out the goods before I marry you, right? I got to see if, you know, I mean, what happens, you know, uh, if I touch your leg? Is that going to work for me? Um, <laughs> maybe we have to live together and bake a few cakes and watch a few Netflix specials. Because what happens if we watch a Netflix special and we don't agree on on that, right? And so... We have all this, um, what I would say, a very short-lived, uh, transient experiences that we that we use as data to choose our partners. But the fact is, character doesn't change. Tastes in Netflix shows and and sexuality th that ebbs and flows. Even love, these couples, these young Hasidic couples, love never even factors into it. If you ask these young couples, did you love? The, did you love each other before you got married? They would look at you sort of strange. I mean, they would they they would quote Tina Turner. They don't even know Tina Turner, and they would say, "Well, what does love have to do with it?" <laughs> um, and and what, 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 what they would argue is that what what love is is the shared experiences, the trials and tribulations of life together as a partnership, and that love evolves throughout these trials and tribulations, just like sexuality does. It ebbs and flows over a lifetime. And so um, it, it, really, it, it really is uh, a very different way 
of choosing um, a, a life partner. And it, it plays very nicely with the foundational element, if this is important to you, about choosing a life partner based on character traits and life principles uh, versus the strong emotional feeling stuff um, that my clients bring into my office and become disillusioned when um, that that really does end uh, usually somewhere between uh, it could be anywhere between the the nine nine month mark or three or four year mark but definitely by the time that first kid comes all bets are off and these young couples in my office who are secular are not prepared for um, for that reckoning when uh, all that feeling stuff is replaced by uh, the very practical reality of um, of raising a young family. Interesting. Yeah. So, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, right, the through all the physical things or the emotional world that really turns off that that thinking portion of it, and then does the in, in a way does that emotional piece of the physicality or we like these things or whatever that emotional piece is that just override the thinking of like, hey, we might not even be a good match. Is that is that kind of what? Does that play a part of this? Well, I would even argue the opposite. Uh, it's no. the touching that makes you think it's a good match, right? Oh. You know, it's it's the idea that if I'm, you know, if you're on a second date, if you're on a second date and you're in a restaurant, I mean, imagine this. You can just play this out right now. Think of when you're with your partners and your partner takes your hand in your hand and caresses your hand. Watch what happens to your thinking. You're usually focusing <laughs> on the touch and and by the way, I'm not even saying it's positive. You might be like, ugh, I wish she wasn't touching my hand or I wish we weren't holding hands. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, I'm getting a little bit aroused. I, I, I sort of like this touch. But watch what happens to your thinking self. Watch what happens to uh, maybe a plan you wanted to share or maybe you were talking about a life goal. It gets very – it gets diffuse. It's sort, of, um, it's sort of hard to get back on track. If you don't – if you're not sure how this works, try it in a couple of days. Bring up um, uh, something about a life goal or a plan with your partner and as, as she's talking, take her hand and just lightly caress it. And watch how the conversation just starts to change. I'm not saying good or bad, but it changes. And if you're dating for marriage, you don't want to dilute the thinking brain to, to help you answer the question, is this a good life partner for me? That's really funny because I'm thinking back on my uh, relationship with my fiance, and we joke that we can only have – uh, serious conversations when she's coloring because <laughs> otherwise she just gets distracted and it's funny to think that the, there's this emotional aspect that short circuits that thinking brain and can make those conversations difficult and you know she's a very interesting person she uh, is very very easily distracted to say but uh, it's interesting to think about that and you also said earlier you made the contrast between talking about life goals versus life principles and I thought that that was funny that they're not the same because you would think that like talking about where you want to be in the future is equivalent to talking about like the kind of person you are you like but it's not you're not saying this is how we're going to build a life together this is um, the things that are important to me and how we're going to get there you're just saying oh I hope then I'm going to end up there. And it could be the same thing as me saying to Alex, I'm going to be on the moon next year. <laughs> and it's like, how are you going to get there? Right. And, and, you know, the other thing I think that is important to say here uh, is that 
I'm not sure how many of your listeners have been listening to all your podcasts. Let's hope they are. Uh, but, you know, you've talked about pseudo self, right? And that's really the self we bring into almost all of our encounters. It's, it's very rare to meet a, a real high emotional, a highly differentiated person. We all bring our pseudo self, our anxious self into a lot of our daily encounters. And, it, and if there's any more... Um, if there's a scenario that is uh, uh, any more ripe for pseudo self, it's dating because anxiety is high. You want your, you want the person to like you. You want them to find you attractive. So what you're going to do naturally is you're going to diminish anything that you perceive in the person sitting across from you uh, is uncomfortable or they might not like what you're saying. And you're going to what you're going to, and then you're going to highlight all the stuff that you sort of perceive might work for them. And so there's a sort of exchanging of cells that happens on a date. And anything that you can do, anything that you can do to diminish that process and allow character to reveal itself during a date is going to help you pick a better partner to marry. And one tip I tell my clients when I am working with a single person is at some point in your dating career, in your courtship, you gotta go back to your partner's family and have dinner. You gotta go back <laughs> to the family. Most most of the secular people in my office wait until they get married. I'm assuming, by the way, it's on a five year courtship because at that point they probably have met their um, their future in laws. But a, a lot of people don't want to do that because it's too intimate. By the way, what's funny is that they'll have all you know they'll have all sorts of sexual escapades and this that's not too intimate but bringing my bringing the person home to my mother that's way too intimate that's much too intimate right? oh that's a dichotomy and so, and so what i tell people is that you want to go on dates that's going to reveal character so you got to go on dates that's going to be challenging that's going to push you out of your comfort zone that's why rock concerts and movies while it feels good, it, 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 it's still um, you're still operating in a sort of a pseudo self way in triangles. You're talking about the movie. You're talking about your friend who saw the movie. But if you really want to reveal character, you're going to you either have to travel or meet meet your uh, your partner's parents or go to their work. You want to see them operating in their natural environment and how and how they get anxious and how they get a bit uncomfortable. And. And by revealing character, you're going to get a little bit closer of an understanding of what is this person going to be like when we're under the gun, whether whatever stressful situations you're inevitably going to be in when you get married. I, I can think of our, our last podcasts prior to this one where Zach talked about the difference between presence, just being somewhere without being thoughtful and intentionality and how carving out that intentionality piece actually reveals the important information and when you were talking about the the matchmaker and the background that they were able to get from the the um, potential partner one of the the questions that that's is often talked about in bow and theory is what information is important to pay attention to and the physical and and all those feelings kind of cloud what i hear you saying the important information about and you use the phrase um um can i build a life with this person and that's an intentional question that requires specific information that has to really be ascertained that can't be done as you're saying at a rock concert right and john i'm going to tell you something uh you know 
it's it's really I find it fascinating. I'll have a couple in my office that are beautiful. I mean, objectively beautiful. They walk into my office, they sit down, and I think to myself, these are the most beautiful people I have ever seen, and they haven't had sex in four years. These are people who have not had sex in four years. They're repulsed by each other. And if you ask them about their sexual history, they couldn't stop having sex when they first met. So it seems to me there's very little correlation between the very things that 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 secular or modern people look for at the beginning and a, and, and a good marriage. Very little correlation. But here's something I have noticed. And, you know, there's I haven't seen any research on this. And if if any of you have, I'd be curious to read about it. All of the turbulent courtships that end up in my office because a rabbi or a priest sends them to my office because, you know, like let's say they're engaged and they break up and the parents are freaking out and the wedding is not, you know, uh, working out. And, and so any of the turbulent engagements and courtships that end up in my office, if they're able to write out the turbulence and, and increase their level of maturity because of that process, they take that experience into their marriage and they have a much smoother marriage than the couples that start out – um, blemish free. And uh, you know, couples like this, by the way, the engagement is beautiful. The wedding is picture perfect. Everything is great. And you can see it coming from a million miles away. When the problem hits at the third or fourth year of the marriage or something's going to happen because that's what happens in life. They haven't developed, they haven't developed the coping skills. And then they start asking themselves, Oh, maybe I picked the wrong person. And that's when people get existential and, you know, the whole thing with it, we're in a divorce culture and people get existential and they think they picked the wrong partner and they don't understand that the natural arc of committed relationships is problems. That's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> so I, I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any research on that, but it does seem to me that a turbulent engagement could be quite healthy. That's interesting. I know that there are studies to some degree with regards to marriages and uh, divorces, specifically satisfaction in second marriages and third marriages. And you see that once you pass a certain amount of time in your first marriage, if you stay married, you know, the satisfaction level goes up after a certain point. Um, And it seems like that would be somehow correlated to getting past those turbulent times, those problems, having resolved them because like you're saying, people encounter problems and if you're able to forge a way through that, you're, I guess from a systems theory, you would be developing self and that ultimately equips you to better engage with and better enjoy your relationship in marriage after that point. Whereas the people who get divorced and get remarried often have less satisfaction and the likelihood of divorce is higher. I, I think the key, though, we, um, I, I've heard I've heard people uh, discuss that that second marriages and, th- and third marriages, the research seems to suggest that they do better. In fact, actually, there's a higher rate of divorce in second and third marriages. Here's the caveat. Here's the but. Give it to me. However, if you if you divorce and you you find it within yourself to answer a couple of questions, number one. What was my contribution to the divorce? Whatever your partner did, what was my contribution to where things are right now? And number two, what do I have to do to do something different in my next relationship? If you're able to do the hard introspective work, the stats do support a more fulfilling second marriage. 
I haven't seen about third marriages, but definitely a second marriage. <laughs> but what I see, but generally what I see in my office is people double down on doing the same thing and they buy into the fantasy. And I really do believe this is a this is societal regression. It, it, it's a it's a cultural immaturity that I just picked the wrong partner. And if I pick better next time, yeah, I'll have a better marriage. And that is absolutely uh, I, I would say that's a, it's a fantasy. Yeah. It seems to me that this is kind of floating all, all around homeostasis, right? So, you know, if you <clears throat> if you're trying to do this the right way, right? You when you go to date somebody, you're doing one of two things. You're trying to determine what the homeostasis is going to be like in the future. And if you find that to be good, then you're also trying to build that whatever that homeostasis is going to be, those routines and those expectations. And, and you're trying to build that formation of it. So that way, when you get through those, when you get to those hard times, you've already thought through all these things. But if you don't do that, it seems to be like if you don't work on yourself and you don't figure those things out, um, then life is just going to make you do it anyway. And you don't want to, you know, so, so either you're going to work on yourself to try to figure that out or life is going to make you do it anyway. And then when, if well, life's going to make you do it anyway, then it's like, Oh crap. Now I have to do something, you know? Well, as John referenced in, in the last podcast, and I've heard John bring this up a couple of times, one of the, one of the most beautiful things about David Snarch's book, passionate marriage is that his argument is that don't, sweat the partner you pick and the gridlock you find yourself in because it is it is elegantly designed to help you grow up and you know i I really you know guys i really believe this if people understood that their problems are there to help them grow up they wouldn't get all existential apocalyptic about where they are in life it's not fun Mm. gridlock isn't fun but if you understand that these these problems that you're in are generations in the making and that you have an opportunity with the person you pick to marry to do something that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents couldn't do or didn't do, I really do believe that that, that different frame um, would, would, would aid people in doing the hard work instead of the fantasy of if I just marry differently or pick a different partner, um, I'd have a better outcome. I think that what you're sharing is something that most people haven't heard. They 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 sense the troubles that come. You mentioned mortgage and children and the realities of life, and they're just not sure where to where to go. And so the conclusion they draw is, I picked the wrong one, and I'm going to find somebody else. Uh, a related question is like, how do I know that this is the one for me? And what I hear you saying from from your examination of, of more of the traditional cultures is I can make if I'm committed to this person and and there's some key key aspects of things that are important to me and my guiding principles, then this can work. And that love is a feeling, but it's a choice. And this person's interaction with me and what that brings up in me can only do the it it can reveal things in me that couldn't be revealed if I lived on my own or weren't actually part of this intimate relationship. John, I'm going to tell you something. It's funny you're you're raising that. What I what I usually I'll ask my clients in my office who've been dating two years or, or or three years, and they'll say to me, "I just need another eight months, or I need another year." And I what I ask them is, "What do you think you're going to find out about your partner that you haven't discovered at about the four or five month mark?" Hmm. And then I just let the question sit in the room. 
I have never heard someone say to me, give me a definitive answer of what they're looking to still find out. Because all, all they're dealing with, and I would say it's a cultural um, zeitgeist or something, all they're dealing with is some sort of cultural anxiety that if I wait long enough, some the heavens are going to part and say marry or don't marry. And I think with the traditional, uh, the traditional culture, specifically how these, um, these uh, Hasidic cultures, these Hasidic uh, communities date, I think there's something very wise there, which is, you know what? At about the three, four, you pick the month, let's say eight months. At about eight months, what are you really going to discover at month nine or month 11 or month 13? If, if family systems theory is correct, we have evolved to invite people in who are a good emotional match for ourselves. And we really, we really do reject the people who are too low or too high on the scale of maturity. <laughs> and, and if you've made it past our internal gatekeeper and we're dating and it's about three, four months and, and secular people, when I tell my clients that they, in workshops, people look at me like I'm crazy. I said, look, three, four months, marry them. I mean, if you really <laughs> want to get married, you pretty much know everything at about three, four. You, mm-hmm. you probably asked most of the questions. And if you haven't, you're not going to ask them at six months or seven months um, uh, anyway. So th- really, I, I really I really don't think you're going to learn anything else in terms of living together. By the way, the research is quite clear. Uh, living together, uh, the divorce rate is higher for people who live together. We can get into that in another show. But... <laughs> Three, four months in, you pretty much know uh, what you're getting, more or less. And if marriage is a life goal for you, uh, you pick the good one at that point. Just maybe one last question. You you brought up cohabitation, and certainly in the U.S. that has increased. Uh, What's behind that? And, um, yeah, what's behind the rise in cohabitation? What problem are people trying to solve and how do you see cohabitation and its increase in frequency? You know, I, I mean, my understanding is Amazon.com is a lot uh, richer <laughs> and better than Amazon.ca. But even in Canada, Amazon is unbelievable. I mean, I love Amazon Prime. And what I love about Amazon Prime is you get your product and you get like, what is it? I think 30 days, two months to try it out and see if it works. And if it doesn't, you put it in a little package and you send it back. And it's really quick and it's really efficient. And I take advantage of Amazon Prime uh, until I find the perfect book, the perfect sweater. It's, it's a beautiful uh, guarantee. And I think it's a great thing. And I think that we, we are living in a culture of um, try it on, experience it. And at the, first sl- at the first sign of discomfort, at the first sign of anxiety, something is wrong with the product or service. And it's your right. It's your God given right mm-hmm. to give it back and start the, 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 um, the process of uh, consuming. Um, once again, uh, I think, I think it's become, uh, even m- more present today as our generation, uh, the generation of young people in my office, um, have options and the socioeconomic status has changed with men and women. So you have a lot more choice. And also they just, lo- they look at their parents' marriages and hmm. especially the marriages from the seventies and eighties with a divorce rate. And they think, you know what? Um, I don't want that. And so they're so hypersensitive about problems. They want to avoid problems that they run at the first sign 
of of any blemish, uh, and it's a problem. I've got to, you know, I've got to tell you guys, I've got my office. I'd say about a third of my practice is, you know, forty somethings, fifty somethings, still waiting for a blemish-free partner. And uh, unfortunately, it's going to be a tragic thing for these people. They will be single the rest of their lives. Uh, this reminds me. I, I can't remember where I saw the article. So this is kind of <laughs> whatever. But like, you know, within. American culture, it's this pursuit of happiness, the right to pursue happiness and how that can really, what you just talked about, how it can really mess things up, right? So this is my right. I should be happy. And so if I'm not happy, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be out of it, you know, uh, which I just found super fascinating, especially since that's part of like American um, culture uh, and, and documentation. Yeah, that, that that's something that, that when you talked about that, that made me really interesting. And it reminds me of a time when I was talking to John and I've been through, I've talked to John uh, about a lot of my dating pursuits. And luckily, and, um, and I, I'm blessed to now be with somebody who I, I see a future with and like I want to get married to this person. And so, but before that, I was stumbling along through all these different relationships. And I remember John just said, um, so, something along the lines of maybe, maybe it's not about happiness or one time. Maybe, I, I don't remember. I remember you sitting there and be like, maybe you're just not supposed to be happy. Like, what if this has nothing to do with happiness? And I was just like, I don't even know if I said anything. I remember just leaving your room and being like, holy crap, he's right. This like, what, what, you know, it was just, it, it's so fascinating if your whole dating relationship and all your relationships, not even dating is, is all connected to, well, I'm either happy or I'm not. And if I'm not, I'm out of it. That can really get you out of whack. Look, I'll, I'll share a quick, uh, a personal thing um, that um, I share in my workshop. So I, I feel comfortable sharing this. Uh, our eldest child has a, a metabolic issue. Um, he's going to live uh, a nice long life and he, he lives a, a normal ish life. But whenever he gets the flu or he gets a fever, he ends up, at, he ends up in hospital. Um, and uh, not always, but often, and he has to be on IV fluids. And usually he's there for four to six days, which puts a tremendous strain. We've got two other kids, young kids in our house and he's on IV fluids and he hates the IV and, and you got to, you know, my wife and I go back and forth the hospital. And uh, I got to tell you something. Um, our sexual chemistry, our um, life, shared life goals, our, uh, um, you know, the way, um, the way that we enjoy each other's company, none of that comes really into play uh, in terms of uh, uh, how we have to operate as an efficient team to raise the two other kids while our other kid is in hospital and going back and forth. And it's, it's in those moments where you see Okay, where you see that it's it's those boring, unsexy, has nothing to do with happiness. The efficiencies of of two people trying their best uh, to be leaders while they're, ext you know, I, I get very sad and I'm very anxious, uh, and we have to somehow work with that and raise these other kids, and and um, and I, I don't for a moment during those very scary, um, you know, times think about happiness or sex or any of that kind of stuff. But man, do I uh, 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 appreciate at such a deep level having a lease in my life and that we can do this for our family as a team. And I know it's not sexy. A team doesn't sound very sexy, but I sure wouldn't want to do it alone. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. Avram, we really appreciate your, your time and, uh, just what a rich discussion, the perspective of dating and relationships and something that 
in our culture, we don't talk much about in terms of some of the things that you share tonight. So I really think it's a refreshing perspective. Uh, guys, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I just really want to tie up this last thing. How can we make our dating lives more like the Hasidic Jews so that we're more likely to have a happy relationship? Like, give it to me, Avram. Give me that firm, like, be more Hasidic. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but <laughs> tell me how to be. So so the first thing, Zach, you have is that it's Zach, right? Yes, it's Zach. Yeah. So Zach, the first thing you have to do is those fur hats cost about $4,500. So you got to go to New York. Okay. They're called, it's called a strimal. Your, your, your fiance will love it. And you, yeah, a a strimal and you show up with one of these beaver felt hats on your date with your, she'll love it. She'll, yeah, it's 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 an investment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't get that on Amazon. It's the first step. No, you can get that on Amazon. I'm not sure. <laughs> and you don't have to commit, and you don't have to learn how to commit. Yeah, because they got 30 days. They can return it. Yeah. <laughs> you can send it back with lice. You can send it back with dandruff. You know, they'll just take it back. Okay, so step one, get the head. Right. Step two. What's step two? What, what step do I... Is that, is, is it that the only step? Too? Is that the only thing I need to do to be <laughs> more a better Hasidic dater? The, the conversion process is is at least a year. It, it's it, you would not enjoy it at all. <laughs> Live your life, Zach, the way you're living your life, and uh, I think systems theory will uh, will serve you. <laughs> really okay. Note to self: just stay principled. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Uh, this has been awesome, and we're gonna have to have you on again because there's just so much uh, awesomeness and able to talk about uh, different things that we don't even think about. And so it's been, uh, I really thank you for coming on podcast with us. And um, man, it's just it's so good. good. Yeah, uh, Avram, if they want to go to your website, can you uh, share their, your website with our listeners, please? Sure, it's mylastname.com, Nadigal, N-A-D-I-G-E-L.com. Wonderful. Well, Abram, thanks for a good conversation tonight. Uh, Really enjoyed it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, guys, check out Nanagil.com. We'll have it in the show notes. Remember to check out his two books, I've Read Through Learning to Commit, and it's a pretty solid resource if you want to see what systems theory looks like interplayed with your love life. Um, Haven't looked through It Takes More Than Love yet, that workbook, but I'm going to check it out. Be looking out for his book. You can check us out on Facebook, OF leadership of leadership you know it's pretty easy to spell just put that in the search bar we have of leadership.com we have of leadership at gmail.com plenty of ways to reach out to us let us know you're listening let us know if you like avram or uh you know just you have any questions for us for us to pass to him straight to him because you have his connection (laughs) now you know plenty of ways to interact yeah We'd love to hear back from you. Yeah, don't triangle us. No. <laughs> we we will speak to Avram for you on your behalf, but we will also be talking about you. <laughs> Thanks a bunch, guys. <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, I'm Alex. I'm John. I'm Zach. I'm Avram. And we'll see you around. Thanks for listening. See you around.